Good morning. I'm Betty McKinney at Rick Bonfam Ministries. Glad you've joined us. Today we're going to talk about the end of Stephen's defense and his martyrdom in Acts chapter 6 and 7. Stephen, as you probably know, was the first Christian martyr. And we're going to talk about that concept today, about martyrdom and persecution of the early church and what that accomplished. So just to give you a little bit of um, background as we run into this, um, as we make our way into this, Look at chapter 6 of Acts with me, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrians and Alexandrians, and some from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. And yet they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Now, we come down in chapter 7 to what is called in my Bible, Stephen's defense. But I want to point out to you, this is not a personal defense. He is not personally defending himself. But it's rather, he, he lays out a history of Israel's failures. And it deals with three pillars of Jewish covenant with God and Jewish life. Number one, the land that was given to Abraham and his descendants. Number two, the law that was given through Moses. And number three, the temple, which has now come to not be a place of sacrifice of animals, but has come to reside in human hearts. And then Stephen's defense ends with a resounding denunciation of his accusers. He clearly indicts Israel's leaders for rejecting God's messengers in the past and now ultimately rejecting the Messiah, Jesus, who was prophesied about through Abraham, Moses, and the temple itself. So let's look into Acts 7, where we have the, the final words of Stephen's defense. I'm going to start with verse 51. You men who are, this is Stephen speaking to these leaders, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels, and yet did not keep it. Now I would submit to you, Stephen is not just presenting a defense he is prophesying. Rick, do you have 1 Corinthians 14.3? Stephen is prophesying according to 1 Corinthians 14.3. Listen to this. He who prophesies speaks unto men for to edification, exhortation, and comfort. Okay. So the definition from 1 Corinthians 14.3 is that it's speaking to men for edification, exhortation, and consolation or comfort. Stephen here is exhorting these men. I looked up exhort in the dictionary. Exhort means to strongly charge, encourage, or urge someone to change, to do or not do something. Exhortation is correction for the well-being of another. So, as I said, Stephen's defense, as they call it, was not 
defending himself, justifying himself. It was not pleading for mercy from these men. And it wasn't even condemning them. It's exhortation. It's prophesying, which is for the benefit of someone else. And in this case, his very accusers. I find that very challenging. If someone came at me the way these guys came at Stephen, my temptation would be immediately to justify myself, you know, to try to excuse myself or even to condemn them to say, how dare you speak to me that way? But Stephen's mind was not on himself. He exhorted them in the spirit of prophecy to change, to understand their own covenant, Abraham, Moses, and what the temple all represented was Messiah, Jesus. So he goes on as we finish this chapter 7 of Acts with verse 54 through 56. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. So obviously they're not convicted, are they, by this exhortation. The prophetic word did not get through to their hard hearts. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he, meaning Stephen, gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. When I read that as I was preparing this weekend, I thought, you know what? He saw exactly what Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7. Let me read that to you. Daniel 7 with verse 9, starting with verse 9. I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days saw his, took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending to him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened." This humble man, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, who had been recruited to run the the food bank, the kitchen there in Jerusalem, he saw what the prophet Daniel saw. Even as he's coming under all of this accusation and condemnation, that's where his eyes were fixed. I I think that's awesome. I have um, some readings that um, Frankie, and I think Rick has one, Psalm 110.1, other references to what it was that Stephen saw at this moment. Let's have Psalm 110. The Lord said unto me, Sit you at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Okay. Now what did we say that Stephen saw? He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. What about Mark 14.62? And Jesus said, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Amen. How about Luke twenty two sixty nine? I think Frankie has that one too. Okay. Thanks for your help. <laughs> okay. Uh, Luke twenty two sixty nine. Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. Amen. What about Hebrews one two and three? I think Cindy has that. But in these last days, 
he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through him he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Okay, so those are just a few of the references throughout the word of God that Jesus is seated at God's right hand. Amen? Being seated at God's right hand means that Jesus is there actively ruling with God as Lord over all. And I saw this quote. This quote said, As the brilliance of the sun cannot be separated from the sun itself, so the sun, Jesus, is inseparable from God the Father. But let me ask you Bible scholars out there, in verse 56, what's different in what Stephen saw as he gazed into heaven? Do you notice a difference between the verses we just read in Hebrews and Luke and what Stephen saw? Bible scholars, what did, what did we see there, Frankie? Sometimes he was sitting and sometimes he was standing. We see in verse 56 that when Stephen saw what Daniel saw, what's talked about in Hebrews, Jesus was standing, not seated. Now the significance of this is debated. You look at different commentaries and different people have ideas. of Why, why do we always see in the scripture Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, but when Stephen had his vision, at the end of his life he was standing. My opinion, my humble opinion, you can take, eat the meat, spit out the bones, but my opinion is that Stephen here is the first of many who will give all, even their life, sold out for Jesus Christ. He is the first Christian martyr. And Jesus standing up from his seat by the Father represents this is what Jesus thinks of such people. He honors them. He respects them. He welcomes them. Amen? Um, so let's talk about martyrs for a minute. These people who Jesus welcomes, who he honors so much that he would stand up to welcome them into his presence. Cindy's got a couple of verses from Revelation chapter 6 and chapter 7. Listen to, I want you to, as she reads this, the where and the what these people are experiencing. These who have given their lives for the love of Christ. Okay? This is Revelation 6, 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony that had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth? And avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had, as they had been, was completed. Amen. And then the next chapter, Revelation 7, 13 through 17. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they, and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them mm -hmm. white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger, 
Never again will they thirst. Yeah. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching mm. heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, mm. and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Mm. So where, where are these, this group of people that have been martyred, that have given everything? They're at the altar. They're, under the, they're as close to God. You know, heaven's a huge place. It's many, many, many football stadiums. It's many miles. But they are as close to God as anyone can get. They are, it says, before the throne. It says they are in his heavenly temple. Amen? That's the where. You think about heaven being just enormous. And they're as close to God as anyone. And then what does John in his revelation say, say about them? What is their condition as they are in heaven? It says they're in white robes that have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. It's the blood of the Lamb that makes you white. It says that they're told to rest a while from all of their suffering, from all of their tribulation, to just rest there at the altar, there in the temple, the real temple of which the earthly temple was just a shadow, right? It says they will hunger no more. They will thirst no more. The heat will not bear down on them, meaning no more harsh conditions, no more torture or oppression. It says they'll be given the springs of the water of life. And finally, that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Hallelujah. Well, if you guys have listened to me teach for very long, you know that I um, really believe in a very awesome ministry called The Voice of the Martyrs. I have one of their magazines here. And um, I just, I'm so impressed and so blessed by this ministry. They serve persecuted Christians and their families. They supply Bibles and Christian materials in restricted nations where it's almost impossible to get the Bible or you could even be thrown in prison for having a Bible. They help with material, financial needs, say for a family of a, a pastor that's been put in prison and, or been killed. Um, and then they also try to awaken and inform the church in the West about the persecuted church and help us understand that that's the normal Christian life. People pay a high, high price for Christianity in many places in the world that we don't, we're not so sensitive to. And actually, when you understand what they, they teach us, there is more persecution, more martyrs in this past 100 years than all the centuries combined. So this isn't just something from way back when. This is something that's going on now. Um, you know where the church is growing the fastest? In Iran. People are turning to Jesus Christ in an oppressive Sharia law Muslim country. And it's illegal to be a Christian there. You'll go to prison if you are holding meetings in your house and you get discovered. You will be beaten. You'll be tortured. But... They are willing to be martyrs because they are so hungry for truth and for Jesus Christ. And so Iran, the church is growing fast under persecution. So let's let's finish this up and bring it bring it home to. I want to get us to Acts um, eight chapter uh, verse one and two. So I'm going to start again in Acts seven fifty seven and fifty eight. So these are Stephen has just looked up and he has seen. Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I think this now, 
he's out of there already. <laughs> this, is, this is capturing his full attention. He is completely detached from what's going on around him. Praise God. Because it's ugly. <laughs> what's going on around him is very ugly, but he's already in glory in terms of his attention and his heart and what he's seeing. So it says in verse um, 57, but they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears. I mean, just, that's just a physical demonstration. We don't want to hear anything you have to say. We do not receive your prophesying, your exhortation. Verse 58, and when they had driven him out of the city, when we go to Jerusalem, we go to the, um, the Lion Gate, sometimes called Stephen's Gate. And that's where it's believed, that's, that's the gate where they took him out of the city because it wasn't... Um, by law, they couldn't stone anyone inside the city. And that's, um, it's on the east side of the city of Jerusalem, the old city, toward the Kidron Valley. And that's called Stephen's Gate. So that's probably um, where they, they took him out. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So here, Saul is introduced. <laughs> This is Luke's way, as he's telling the story, of introducing the main character of the next part of Acts, which is Saul. And um, I've got my mom's Haley's Handbook here that I like to reference because I think it just often has interesting comments. So I'm going to read you what it says about, about this. Here is one of the turning points of history. Young Saul seems already to have been a member of the Sanhedrin. He may have been present at one or both of the Sanhedrin meetings in which they tried to stop the apostles from preaching Christ and may himself have witnessed Peter's bold and defiant refusal. But now, in all his life, he had never seen a death like that of Stephen. Though its immediate effect was to start Saul on his rampage of persecuting the disciples, yet it may be that Stephen's dying words went straight to the mark and lodged deep in Saul's mind. They're quietly working to make him ready and receptive for the great vision on the road to Damascus. Never thought about those things before. It may be in part, at least, that Stephen's martyrdom was the price paid for Saul's soul. And what a soul. Next to Jesus, the greatest man of all the ages, the one man who more than any other established Christianity in the main centers of the then known world and altered the course of history Saul of Tarsus. Interesting. So here Luke introduces the main character of the second section of this book. And as we finish um, chapter 7, it says, And they went on stoning Stephen as he called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Beautiful, powerful. As I said, in verse 55, being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Through all of this, Stephen is not so aware of the cruel crowd, the accusers. He's gazing intently into heaven. And, and that gives us a clue of the mercy and the power of God towards someone being martyred. You know, that they're so focused on Jesus, maybe they don't even feel the stones. 
They don't even hear the angry words. Praise God. All I can say is that Jesus and and God the Father and the Holy Spirit have a tender love and care for someone who would not denounce them, would not even try to defend themselves, but, but their heart and their life is to the death, devoted, sold out to Jesus. Amen? Um, we're going to be surprised when we get to heaven to see who's really at the altar. <laughs> Maybe it isn't the greatest preacher you know, on TV. Maybe it's going to be these little ones who suffered so much for the gospel but never wavered in their love for Jesus. Those unknown, unnamed people who, who loved him. So, to finish. Remember when we started Acts? There's a powerful promise to believers in Acts 1, chapter Uh, Acts 1, verse 8, and you all know it. It says, But you shall receive, what? Power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, or witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of this earth. Now, let me give you a little word lesson here. The word witness, when he says, You shall be witness unto me, If you look this up in the lexicon uh, of the New Testament, it's number 3144, and the Greek word is martis. Martis, according to the lexicon, means one who has personal experiential knowledge. It also means a designation of those who suffer to the point of death for confessing Christ. So, The word witness, when he says, you shall be witnesses unto me, the word witness comes from the same root word in Greek for martyr. Witness and martyr are the same word. Think about that. So, we need to scroll, John. (laughs) Now, we're at Acts 1. Now, that was what I just quoted was Acts 1.8, right? You shall be witnesses unto me. Now, let's go to Acts 8.1. That's kind of cool. Acts 8.1, and Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. How about that? Acts 8.1 is the fulfillment of Acts 1.8. <laughs> they were told you're going to not just be in Jerusalem, but you'll be in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. But up until this time, they couldn't really conceive of doing anything but just having the church they had there, right? They were self-contained. They were together. They had all things in common. They were, but it took persecution. It took this first martyrdom to, to make the church not remain cloistered in Jerusalem, but to be scattered to Judea and Samaria and fulfill that word. So persecution Guys, it's not something we seek or want. (laughs) We don't try to bring persecution on ourselves. Amen? But we have to understand God's purpose in it, that it causes the church to grow, the way it's growing in Iran, the way it's growing in Cuba. So we have to receive what God is doing through persecution, and um, maybe that's what this country needs a little bit more, (laughs) so that we aren't so just lukewarm and satisfied with our Christianity but we have to make a choice of who we will serve. And the bottom line, the bottom line is Romans 8:28, for we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him.
to those who are called according to his purpose. Even something as harsh as what Stephen went through, look what it did for the church, look what it did perhaps as Haley suggested for Paul, Saul. Amen? So be encouraged today. Don't be afraid. Be encouraged that persecution isn't all bad. God can use it and he will use it. And be encouraged. We'll see you tomorrow. And let them through the wilderness into the promised land. In boundless love and mercy, he gave his only son, who became the sacrifice for everyone. Oh, God's mercy, so amazing. Oh, God's mercy so amazes me.